And state universities are not angels whose actions are above judicial scrutiny. This is affirmative action gone berserk. I read the opinion of the court in Fisher v. University of Texas back in November, but I just received a request to read the dissenting opinions written by Justices Alito and Thomas in that case. So I'm going to do that over the next two episodes. Justice Thomas's dissent is only one page long, so in today's episode, I'll be reading that one first, followed by Justice Alito's 51-page dissent, which itself will be broken into two parts, the first half of which I'll be reading today. For a little perspective, the opinion of the court in this case was just barely 20 pages long. When a dissenting opinion is more than twice the length of its respective opinion of the court, as it is in this case, I'd say that's a pretty good indicator that the dissenting justice is more than just a little passionate about his or her reasons for disagreeing with the majority. Which makes me wonder why I didn't record this dissent in the first place. And by the way, if you have not yet listened to the majority opinion in this case, you might want to scroll back to that November election week episode from 2022 and give it a listen first. So without further delay, I give you the 2016 dissenting opinions of Justices Thomas and Alito in Fisher v. University of Texas. Enjoy. Justice Thomas, dissenting. I join Justice Alito's dissent. As Justice Alito explains, the court's decision today is irreconcilable with strict scrutiny, rests on pernicious assumptions about race, and departs from many of our precedents. I write separately to reaffirm that a state's use of race in higher education admissions decisions is categorically prohibited by the Equal Protection Clause. The Constitution abhors classifications based on race because every time the government places citizens on racial registers and makes race relevant to the provision of burdens or benefits, it demeans us all. That constitutional imperative does not change in the face of a faddish theory that racial discrimination may produce educational benefits. The court was wrong to hold otherwise in Grutter v. Bollinger, 2003. I would overrule Grutter and reverse the Fifth Circuit's judgment. Justice Alito with whom the Chief Justice and Justice Thomas join. Dissenting. Something strange has happened since our prior decision in this case. In that decision, we held that strict scrutiny requires the University of Texas at Austin, or UT, to show that its use of race and ethnicity in making admissions decisions serves compelling interests 
and that its plan is narrowly tailored to achieve those ends. Rejecting the argument that we should defer to UT's judgment on those matters, we made it clear that UT was obligated, one, to identify the interests justifying its plan with enough specificity to permit a reviewing court to determine whether the requirements of strict scrutiny were met, and two, to show that those requirements were in fact satisfied. On remand, UT failed to do what our prior decision demanded. The university has still not identified with any degree of specificity the interests that its use of race and ethnicity is supposed to serve. Its primary argument is that merely invoking the educational benefits of diversity is sufficient and that it need not identify any metric that would allow a court to determine whether its plan is needed to serve or is actually serving those interests. This is nothing less than the plea for deference that we emphatically rejected in our prior decision. Today, however, the court inexplicably grants that request. To the extent that UT has ever moved beyond a plea for deference and identified the relevant interests in more specific terms, its efforts have been shifting, unpersuasive, and, at times, less than candid. When it adopted its race-based plan, UT said that the plan was needed to promote classroom diversity. It pointed to a study showing that African American, Hispanic, and Asian American students were underrepresented in many classes. But UT has never shown that its race-conscious plan actually ameliorates this situation. The university presents no evidence that its admissions officers in administering the holistic component of its plan, can make any effort to determine whether an African-American, Hispanic, or Asian-American student is likely to enroll in classes in which minority students are underrepresented. And although UT's records should permit it to determine without much difficulty whether holistic admittees are any more likely than students admitted through the top 10% law to enroll in the classes lacking racial or ethnic diversity. UT either has not crunched those numbers or has not revealed what they show. Nor has UT explained why the underrepresentation of Asian American students in many classes justifies its plan, which discriminates against those students. At times, UT has claimed that its plan is needed to achieve a critical mass of African-American and Hispanic students, but it has never explained what this term means. According to UT, a critical mass is neither some absolute number of African-American or Hispanic students, nor the percentage of African-Americans or Hispanics in the general population of the state. The term remains undefined, but UT tells us that it will let the courts know when the desired end has been achieved. This is a plea for deference, indeed for blind deference, the very thing that the court rejected in Fisher 1. 
UT has also claimed at times that the race-based component of its plan is needed because the top 10% plan admits the wrong kind of African-American and Hispanic students, namely students from poor families who attend schools in which the student body is predominantly African-American or Hispanic. As UT put it in its brief in Fisher 1, the race-based component of its admissions plan is needed to admit the African-American or Hispanic child of successful professionals in Dallas. After making this argument in its first trip to this court, UT apparently had second thoughts, and in the latest round of briefing, UT has attempted to disavow ever having made the argument. But it did, and the argument turns affirmative action on its head. Affirmative action programs were created to help disadvantaged students. Although UT now disowns the argument that the top 10% plan results in the admission of the wrong kind of African American and Hispanic students, the Fifth Circuit majority bought a version of that claim. As the panel majority put it, the top 10 African American and Hispanic admittees cannot match the holistic African-American and Hispanic admittees when it comes to records of personal achievement, a variety of perspectives and life experiences, and unique skills. All in all, according to the panel majority, the top 10% students cannot enrich the diversity of the student body in the same way as the holistic admittees. As Judge Garza put it in dissent, the panel majority concluded that the top 10% admittees are somehow more homogeneous, less dynamic, and more undesirably stereotypical than those admitted under holistic review. The Fifth Circuit reached this conclusion with little direct evidence regarding the characteristics of the top 10% and holistic admittees. Instead, the assumption behind the Fifth Circuit's reasoning is that most of the African-American and Hispanic students admitted under the race-neutral component of UT's plan were able to rank in the top decile of their high school classes only because they did not have to compete against white and Asian-American students. This insulting stereotype is not supported by the record. African-American and Hispanic students admitted under the top 10% plan receive higher college grades than the African-American and Hispanic students admitted under the race-conscious program. It should not have been necessary for us to grant review a second time in this case, and I have no greater desire than the majority to see the case drag on. But that need not happen. When UT decided to adopt its race-conscious plan, it had every reason to know that its plan would have to satisfy strict scrutiny and that this meant it would be its burden to show that the plan was narrowly tailored to serve compelling interests. UT has failed to make that showing. By all rights, judgment should be entered in favor of petitioner.
But if the majority is determined to give UT yet another chance, we should reverse and send this case back to the district court. What the majority has now done, awarding a victory to UT in an opinion that fails to address the important issues in the case, is simply wrong. Part 1 Over the past 20 years, UT has frequently modified its admissions policies, and it has generally employed race and ethnicity in the most aggressive manner permitted under controlling precedent. Before 1997, race was considered directly as part of the general admissions process, and it was frequently a controlling factor. Admissions were based on two criteria. One, the applicant's academic index, or AI, which was computed from standardized test scores and high school class rank. And two, the applicant's race. In 1996, the last year this race-conscious system was in place, 4.1% of enrolled freshmen were African-American. 14.7% were Asian American, and 14.5% were Hispanic. The Fifth Circuit's decision in Hopwood v. Texas prohibited UT from using race in admissions. In response to Hopwood, beginning with the 1997 admission cycle, UT instituted a holistic review process in which it considered an applicant's AI as well as a Personal Achievement Index, or PAI, that was intended, among other things, to increase minority enrollment. The race-neutral PAI was a composite of scores from two essays and a Personal Achievement Score, which in turn was based on a holistic review of an applicant's leadership qualities, extracurricular activities, honors and awards, work experience, community service, and special circumstances. Special consideration was given to applicants from poor families, applicants from homes in which a language other than English was customarily spoken, and applicants from single-parent households. Because this race-neutral plan gave a preference to disadvantaged students, it had the effect of disproportionately benefiting minority candidates. The Texas legislature also responded to Hopwood. In 1997, it enacted the Top 10% Plan, which mandated that UT admit all Texas seniors who rank in the top 10% of their high school classes. This facially race-neutral law served to equalize competition between students who live in relatively affluent areas with superior schools and students in poorer areas served by schools offering fewer opportunities for academic excellence. And by benefiting the students in the latter group, this plan, like the race-neutral holistic plan already adopted by UT, tended to benefit African-American and Hispanic students who are often trapped in inferior public schools. Starting in 1998, when the top 10% plan took effect, UT's holistic race-neutral AI-slash-PAI system continued to be used to fill the seats in the entering class that were not taken by top 10% students. 
The AI slash PAI system was also used to determine program placement for all incoming students, including the top 10% students. The university's revised admissions process, coupled with the operation of the top 10% law, resulted in a more racially diverse environment at the university. In 2000, UT announced that its enrollment levels for African-American and Hispanic freshmen have returned to those of 1996, the year before the Hopwood decision prohibited the consideration of race in admissions policies. And in 2003, UT proclaimed that it had effectively compensated for the loss of affirmative action. By 2004, the last year under the holistic, neutral, AI-PAI system, UT's entering class was 4.5% African-American, 17.9% Asian-American, and 16.9% Hispanic. The 2004 entering class thus had a higher percentage of African-Americans, Asian-Americans, and Hispanics than the class that entered in 1996, when UT had last employed racial preferences. Notwithstanding these lauded results, UT leapt at the opportunity to reinsert race into the process. On June 23, 2003, this court decided Grutter v. Bollinger, which upheld the University of Michigan Law School's race-conscious admission system. In Grutter, the court warned that a university contemplating the consideration of race as part of its admissions process, must engage in serious, good-faith consideration of workable, race-neutral alternatives that will achieve the diversity the university seeks. Nevertheless, on the very day Grutter was handed down, UT's president announced that the University of Texas at Austin will modify its admissions procedures in light of Grutter, including by implementing procedures at the undergraduate level that combine the benefits of the top 10% law with affirmative action programs. UT purports to have later engaged in almost a year of deliberations, but there is no evidence that the reintroduction of race into the admissions process was anything other than a foregone conclusion following the president's announcement. The university's plan to resume race-conscious admissions was given formal expression in June 2004 in an internal document entitled Proposal to Consider Race and Ethnicity in Admissions. The proposal stated that UT needed race-conscious admissions because it had not yet achieved a critical mass of racial diversity. In support of this claim, UT cited two pieces of evidence. First, it noted that there were significant differences between the racial and ethnic makeup of the university's undergraduate population and the state's population. Second, the proposal relied in substantial part on a study of subset of undergraduate classes containing at least five students. The study showed that among select classes with five or more students, 52% had no African Americans, 
16% had no Asian Americans and 12% had no Hispanics. Moreover, the study showed only 21% of these classes had two or more African Americans. 67% had two or more Asian Americans and 70% had two or more Hispanics. Based on this study, the proposal concluded that UT has not reached a critical mass at the classroom level. The proposal did not analyze the backgrounds, life experiences, leadership qualities, awards, extracurricular activities, community service, personal attributes, or other characteristics of the minority students who were already being admitted to UT under the holistic, race-neutral process. To implement the proposal, the university included a student's race as a component of the PAI score, beginning with applicants in the fall of 2004. The university asked students to classify themselves from among five predefined racial categories on the application. Race is not assigned an explicit numerical value, but it is undisputed that race is a meaningful factor. UT decided to use racial preferences to benefit African-American and Hispanic students because it considers those groups underrepresented minorities. Even though UT's classroom study showed that more classes lacked Asian-American students than lacked Hispanic students, UT deemed Asian-Americans overrepresented based on state demographics. Although UT claims that race is but a factor of a factor of a factor of a factor, UT acknowledges that race is the only one of its holistic factors that appears on the cover of every application. Because an applicant's race is identified at the front of the admissions file, reviewers are aware of it throughout the evaluation. Consideration of race, therefore, pervades every aspect of UT's admissions process. This is by design, as UT considers its use of racial classifications to be a benign form of social engineering. Notwithstanding the omnipresence of racial classifications, UT claims that it keeps no record of how those classifications affect its process. The university doesn't keep any statistics on how many students are affected by the consideration of race in admissions decisions. And it does not know how many minority students are affected in a positive manner by the consideration of race. According to UT, it has no way of making these determinations. UT says that it does not tell its admissions officers how much weight to give to race. And because the influence of race is always contextual, UT claims it cannot provide even a single example of an instance in which race impacted a student's odds of admission. Accordingly, UT asserts that it has no idea which students were admitted as a result of its race-conscious system and which students would have been admitted 
under a race-neutral process. UT thus makes no effort to assess how the individual characteristics of students admitted as the result of racial preferences differ from those of students who would have been admitted without them. Part 2 UT's race-conscious admissions program cannot satisfy strict scrutiny. UT says that the program furthers its interest in the educational benefits of diversity, but it has failed to define that interest with any clarity or to demonstrate that its program is narrowly tailored to achieve that or any other particular interest. By accepting UT's rationales as sufficient to meet its burden, the majority licenses UT's perverse assumptions about different groups of minority students. The precise assumptions strict scrutiny is supposed to stamp out. Section A. The moral imperative of racial neutrality is the driving force of the Equal Protection Clause. At the heart of the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection lies the simple command that the government must treat citizens as individuals, not as simply components of a racial, religious, sexual, or national class. Race-based assignments embody stereotypes that treat individuals as the product of their race evaluating their thoughts and efforts, their very worth as citizens, according to a criterion barred to the government by history and the Constitution. Given our constitutional commitment to the doctrine of equality, distinctions between citizens solely because of their ancestry are by their very nature odious to a free people. Because racial characteristics so seldom provide a relevant basis for disparate treatment. The Equal Protection Clause demands that racial classifications be subjected to the most rigid scrutiny. Judicial review must begin from the position that any official action that treats a person differently on account of his race or ethnic origin is inherently suspect. Under strict scrutiny, the use of race must be necessary to further a compelling governmental interest, and the means employed must be specifically and narrowly tailored to accomplish the compelling interest. The higher education dynamic does not change this standard. Racial discrimination is invidious in all contexts, and the analysis and level of scrutiny applied to determine the validity of a racial classification do not vary simply because the objective appears acceptable. Nor does the standard of review depend on the race of those burdened or benefited by a particular classification. Thus, any person of whatever race has the right to demand that any governmental actor subject to the Constitution justify any racial classification subjecting that person to unequal treatment under the strictest of judicial scrutiny. In short, 
In all contexts, racial classifications are permitted only as a last resort when all else has failed. Strict scrutiny is a searching examination, and it is the government that bears the burden of proof. To meet this burden, the government must demonstrate with clarity that its purpose or interest is both constitutionally permissible and substantial, and that its use of the classification is necessary to the accomplishment of its purpose. Section B. Here, UT has failed to define its interest in using racial preferences with clarity. As a result, the narrow tailoring inquiry is impossible, and UT cannot satisfy strict scrutiny. When UT adopted its challenged policy, it characterized its compelling interest as obtaining a critical mass of underrepresented minorities. The 2004 proposal claimed that the use of race-neutral policies and programs has not been successful in achieving a critical mass of racial diversity. But to this day, UT has not explained in anything other than the vaguest terms what it means by critical mass. In fact, UT argues that it need not identify any interest more specific than securing the educational benefits of diversity. UT has insisted that critical mass is not an absolute number. Instead, UT prefers a deliberately malleable, we'll know it when we see it notion of critical mass. It defines critical mass as an adequate representation of minority students so that the educational benefits that can be derived from diversity can actually happen. And it declares that it will know that it has reached critical mass when it sees the educational benefits happening. In other words, trust us. This intentionally imprecise interest is designed to insulate UT's program from meaningful judicial review. As Judge Garza explained, to meet its narrow tailoring burden, the university must explain its goal to us in some meaningful way. We cannot undertake a rigorous ends-to-means narrow tailoring analysis when the university will not define the ends. We cannot tell whether the admissions program closely fits the university's goal when it fails to objectively articulate its goal. Nor can we determine whether considering race is necessary for the university to achieve critical mass, or whether there are effective race-neutral alternatives, when it has not described what critical mass requires. Indeed, without knowing in reasonably specific terms what critical mass is or how it can be measured, a reviewing court cannot conduct the requisite careful judicial inquiry into whether the use of race was necessary. To be sure, I agree with the majority that our precedents do not require UT to pinpoint an interest in enrolling a certain number of minority students. But in order for us to assess whether UT's program is narrowly tailored, the university must identify some sort of concrete interest. 
classifying and assigning students according to race requires more than an amorphous end to justify it. Because UT has failed to explain with clarity why it needs a race-conscious policy and how it will know when its goals have been met, the narrow tailoring analysis cannot be meaningfully conducted. UT, therefore, cannot satisfy strict scrutiny. The majority acknowledges that asserting an interest in the educational benefits of diversity writ large is insufficient, and that a university's goals cannot be illusory or amorphous. They must be sufficiently measurable to permit judicial scrutiny of the policies adopted to reach them. According to the majority, however, UT has articulated the following concrete and precise goals. The destruction of stereotypes, the promotion of cross-racial understanding, the preparation of a student body for an increasingly diverse workforce and society, and the cultivation of a set of leaders with legitimacy in the eyes of the citizenry. These are laudable goals, but they are not concrete or precise, and they offer no limiting principle for the use of racial preferences. For instance, how will a court ever be able to determine whether stereotypes have been adequately destroyed, or whether cross-racial understanding has been adequately achieved? If a university can justify racial discrimination simply by having a few employees opine that racial preferences are necessary to accomplish these nebulous goals, then the narrow tailoring inquiry is meaningless. Courts will be required to defer to the judgment of university administrators, and affirmative action policies will be completely insulated from judicial review. By accepting these amorphous goals as sufficient for UT to carry its burden, the majority violates decades of precedent rejecting blind deference to government officials defending inherently suspect classifications. Most troublingly, the majority's uncritical deference to UT's self-serving claims blatantly contradicts our decision in the prior iteration of this very case, in which we faulted the Fifth Circuit for improperly deferring to the university's good faith in its use of racial classifications. As we emphasized just three years ago, our precedent makes clear that it is for the courts, not for university administrators, to ensure that an admissions process is narrowly tailored. A court cannot ensure that an admissions process is narrowly tailored if it cannot pin down the goals that the process is designed to achieve. UT's vague policy goals are so broad and imprecise that they cannot withstand strict scrutiny. That's it for part one of this opinion, but next episode, I'll pick up right where this one left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.